Okay, welcome to the podcast, Sonia. Thank you for having me. Stoked. Uh, before we start, I just want to acknowledge I'm producing the podcast on the Swan lands of the Klamen, Klehus, Komoko, and Komox First Nations. Grateful to be here. Uh, so yeah, Sonia, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, kind of where you are, who you are, um, and then kind of how you got into ABA. Uh, I am a PhD level behavior analyst. I am operating my private practice out of Ontario, Canada, uh, in Durham region. My company is called Impact Village, uh, and we provide care and training to local individuals with various needs and diagnoses, as well as parent training, consultation, and um, training for other organizations as well. Um, how I kind of got here uh, like most behavior analysts, kind of stumbled into the field. <laughs> in undergrad, I was actually studying kinesiology, uh, and oh. I got an accidental minor in religious studies. Um, and after that whole thing, while I was working at my uh, university's daycare, I came across and started um, supporting a child with autism and kind of fell in love with him and his uh, entire way of viewing the world and just kind of seeing the world through his eyes. And so through there, I ended up taking an autism and behavior science course um, through a local college here. And that kind of just really projected me into the ABA field, started working in an organization in Toronto. My supervisor there uh, recommended the Chicago school, went to the Chicago school, fell more mm. in love with ABA um, and people that I met within the field. And then uh, continued on to get my PhD. Um, loved my time in Chicago, loved my time in the States, but kind of knew uh, where I wanted to kind of set up was definitely back home in Canada. So came home um, and set up a private practice. Okay, so it's, it's funny. There's a, there seems to be a surprising amount of folks that are, are in kinesiology. Since their undergrad. This is a thing. This is a story I've heard a lot of when on this. Podcast, really? Is that I, There's a few and, that I've heard too. <laughs> and, and I think if kinesiology knew how many how many potential folks ABA was stealing from them, I wonder. <laughs> I, 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 I wonder what they do. Maybe maybe some kind of partnership needs to happen. Why, why did you get into kinesiology in the first place? Um, I way back when I did want to go into medicine. Um, and within all the programs that I saw and that I applied to, uh, the kinesiology program at McMaster University in Hamilton, um, mm. which is where my family's roots are from, um, kind of spoke to me the most. It had a smaller group. It had a lot of hands-on experience. Um, we were able to work with uh, some of the lab activities that the med school got to work on. So I got, yep. you know, firsthand physical and visual experience with um, different lab materials we got to do like different scanners in the hospital um we got to work on cadavers it was it was wow. a really cool experience to to see the human body in that way and to really see um and i think on your comment on kinesiology and aba i kinesiology does break down learning in a similar way now that i kind of mm. reflect on it in terms of sports medicine and in terms of understanding kind of the steps that are added on to each other to create this bigger goal. Um, a lot of my mm. kinesiology um, people that I studied with, they went on to sports medicine. They were, you know, supporting our football team or supporting other teams at McMaster. And so it definitely was in line with that sports trainer, behavior analyst, mm. <laughs> um, and kind of mm. understanding just human movement. 
um, and more of the, I'd say like core ABA, uh, EAB type of deal mm-hmm. of really reinforcing those, uh, you know, specific movements that you want to see more of. Uh, yeah. But I think the mindset is very similar. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's more, I'm seeing a lot more, a lot more, but more and more BCBAs that are, that are getting into the sports realm. Um, yeah. And do, yeah. doing coaching. And there's, there's more and more like uh, CPTs, these certified personal trainers and whatnot that are also BCBAs and kind of combining the stuff. So it, it makes sense. And McMaster, yeah. And McMaster is like one of the top like pre-med places in the country i think i know my it's a great school i'm a little biased because that's where i studied but i absolutely love my time at mcastor university it's a beautiful beautiful school um and it it was a really great program you said accidentally got into religious studies what do you mean by that um so i got an accidental minor um Mm -hmm. i have always been fascinated by learning about religions um and learning about other people's religions um i really enjoyed learning about eastern religions i really enjoyed learning about cults and how people could kind of get absorbed into that mindset. Um, And so I had taken a lot of electives that were related to cults, um, that were related to like religious extremism (laughs) and different things like that, that were all under the religious studies umbrella. And then my um, like academic counselor was like, if you take one more course, you'll actually get a a minor because you've taken so many as your elective. I took another and I got a minor. So it wasn't an intentional minor in religious studies. Um, interesting mix of pin and religion, but it's the way mm-hmm. it happened. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even have thought of sort of like extremism and cults and stuff coming up in religion, but I guess, you know, religions can come in, in yeah. many forms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really, uh, the course offerings that fell under the uh, religious studies department too were also very yeah. uh, well-rounded and really interesting. And so, yeah. Um, it kind now of just happened. <laughs> now you're, you know, you're Jewish, and yep. and so did you learn more about Judaism that you hadn't known about in that program, in that in those courses, or no? Uh, I didn't. Courses? I didn't take courses related to Judaism. Um, I grew up in the Reform community, and so on the weekends I would go to religious school uh, and learned, um, you know, alongside my peers like the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and learning how to read and write in Hebrew. And then um, we did attend services, especially on the high holidays and on, you know, on Shabbat growing up. And so I was pretty well immersed within the Jewish community. Um, Mm. Like I did Hebrew school until grade 10. I also did youth group. I went back and taught um, after I graduated. I went to a Hebrew camp. Um, And so I was pretty well versed on Mm. Reform Judaism. I can't say I'm well versed on orthodox or conservative judaism necessarily but i feel pretty well versed in the community that i was raised in and, and what's what's I've, I've heard what what's what makes what makes it reformed um so it's not as strict with the specific you know laws of the torah so in terms of like kosher laws um so the dietary rules um mm. dress um it's definitely more modernized uh focusing mm. on like the values and the traditions and the core Jewish values, I'd say, mm. the core Jewish teachings uh, is the primary focus as mm. opposed to um, specific dress, specific um, ways of organizing your week, um, specific times that you need to do different things. Um, it's really focusing on like the values-based religion, mm. I'd say, in yeah, terms cool. of Judaism. And how far, how far back does reform go? Because when I think of sort of 
I mean, in my very narrow perspective of religion, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm familiar with the Reformed Christian Church, and a lot of that stuff was like 1700s, 1800s. So it wasn't really modern day reform. It was, you know, old school reform. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure when the Reformed Jewish yeah. movement started. Um, I think my synagogue uh, has been around, I want to say, uh, I mean, like, well before I was born. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it's, you know, it's been around long enough. I'm not sure, too, like in terms mm. of Canada, the U.S. and, and yeah. global. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely more. And this is just my perspective on it. I feel like I the community I was raised in was very much so. Uh, hippie woodstock civil rights jews (laughs) social action like my mom was a social action chair at the union for reform judaism um and so a lot of focus on really the core values of judaism and Mm. not as much focus on like oh no you broke you broke a jewish law um like Mm. one of my sisters has multiple tattoos um she's still welcome to you know pray and and do it like it's not as strict but as other communities in, in other versions that she might not be able to hang out with them kind of thing uh, um tattoos are definitely frowned upon in taboo yeah, yeah, uh, in judaism gotcha, gotcha. i got a, i got a couple questions about ju- judaism because i i know nothing about it <laughs> yeah. and it, this, this is very you know very super biased kinds of questions here that i need okay. some context right so Because my only frame of reference is Christianity. Um, um, So from my perspective, you know, Christianity, you've got the Bible with the two halves, you know, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And we're sort of taught that the Old Testament is, you know, more the Jewish stuff. And the New Testament is, you know, is when the, you know, the the Christian folks started writing in it. Um, And so it was always it was always in my mind a religion. You know, like Christianity, like Judaism is a religion, Christianity is a religion. But then I started hearing, you know, then I started learning about, you know, you know, the Holocaust and 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 you know, and 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 anti-Semitism and all these sorts of things, and and uh, and and somehow, you know, and this is again in my in my young brain. Um, now, Jude being Jewish was kind of like a race um, uh, in a way. And I, and, but, but then my mind struggles because being Christian is not a race. Um, And so how, how does it become a race? Is is it, is it a race because, because I know race is a construct. I think you get into this in your paper, you know, is a construct. And so, and, and, and did it, did it become a thing because of the Holocaust? sort of thing because now someone's decided to target this group of folks for you know for maybe religious beliefs or whatever and 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 essentially now uh now you're all together um you know uh, you know in a, in a cause of you know of uh, of sort of horrible proportions so what's happening um i do think that judaism is more than a religion i think yeah. it's more of a culture um yeah. and I can only speak from my interpretation and understanding of growing up within the community, but I think it has a lot to do with like uh, almost like trauma bonding. It's like we Mm. have been consistently exiled from everywhere that we've lived. We've been executed and exterminated from a lot of our communities. 
I mean, Jews make up less than 1% of the entire world's population. I think it's actually mm. less than 0.5% of the entire mm. world's population. Mm. Um, and so there's Jews all over the world and we're all connected by this global belief that we shouldn't exist and people trying to exterminate gotcha. us. And so I think because of such a small number, it really brings everyone together, whether you mm. are fluent in Hebrew or not fluent in Hebrew, whether mm. you're Orthodox or Reform, we're in this bigger global community together, um, especially because mm. there's so few of us. I mean, if you think mm. of how many people there are in the entire world and how small 0.5% of that, I think it's even less than that. Mm -hmm. That's the entire Jewish population. Um, and so it definitely kind of crosses that boundary of right. not being part of the major majority, um, being like Christian Christianity and Catholicism. There's a majority. And so you have all these sub communities within that. Mm. Um, I feel like, Judaism is potentially the smallest minority. I'm not sure in terms of numbers of other um, religious or ethnic mm -hmm. or cultural groups, um, but it definitely is, you know, it's almost like, you know, when you're traveling and you see somebody else who's Canadian or we want to like acknowledge all the Canadians in Hollywood yeah. and we want to acknowledge sure. all because Canada, relatively speaking, is so incredibly small. Like we yeah. have a lot of land mass, but population wise, yeah. Canada is itty bitty. Right. And so when we see another Canadian making it, we're like, they're Canadian, they're Canadian. Hey, everyone, mm. <laughs> that's another Canadian. Um, and the same thing is, is you know, happens in Judaism. They were like, wow, look at one of us have, has made it. We've, we've done mm. it. And there's that that pride in acknowledging that this extremely small minority is, mm. you know, being successful in some way and, and kind of thing. And was there, and again, I I know there's a lot of history I could read about, but I haven't was there extremism and you know you know essentially you know genocidal actions or whatnot pre-holocaust too absolutely mm. um if you look at the uh history uh in the entire world and just where jewish communities were uh exiled um in the middle east in mm. europe in everywhere and where everyone kind of had to move. I mean, Jewish people are also not welcomed in the United States during the Holocaust. Um, if you think oh, about right. a lot of refugees that were initially accepted, um, I think I re recently read that a lot actually ended up um, in a safe haven in Jamaica, were one of the places mm. that accepted a lot of refugees. And so I feel like kind of just migrating from trying not to be extinguished mm. um, pretty much forever. And I want to say, you know, you go mm. back to even thinking about Moses' time. And mm -hmm. the slaves and being exiled from Egypt and mm -hmm. going back even further from that. Um, but yeah, I feel like anti-Semitism is one of the oldest forms of hatred. And I think people also forget how embedded it is in society and how, you know, signs mm -hmm. used to read, no blacks, no Jews, no dogs. Right. At water fountains, at libraries, in public places. Um, and that the world had that equivalency. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say, especially as a Black Jewish person who also loves dogs, <laughs> that is always stands out in my mind that, yeah, you know, yeah. that that was the parallel that was made. None and of it's, all, and it, it's already a very small group, but like at 0.5%, you say, uh, is I think another thing, again, that, you know, this is just my biases coming out and my experience coming out is uh, up until meeting you, I, I don't even think I would have thought there were black Jews 
Um, yeah. Um, and I think, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of Americans and Canadians would especially hold those biases, um, which I always find interesting. I find it that when people think of, you know, a Jewish person, they have the image of Jerry Seinfeld or, you know, some yeah. rich, wealthy Jew in Hollywood. Um, mm. And I believe, if my memory serves me correct, that his mom was actually a Syrian Jew that was um, mm. came to America. And yeah. so his history is even um, not as people like to perceive it or as people perceive mm -hmm. it. Um, but a lot of people don't think of, you know, um, Diana Ross's children. Tracy Ellis Ross, her last name is Silverstein. Her dad, mm. Bob Ellis, is Jewish. Um, so her and her siblings, <laughs> um, they were raised with a Christmas tree and menorah. And she talks about that mm. a lot in her interviews. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't think of Zoe Kravitz or um, all of these right. other people who are Black and Jewish. They think of predominantly insert white Jew here. Um, yeah. And I always found that really interesting because... Um, If you'd like to collect continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is anti-racism. Before I moved just outside of Toronto, I grew up uh, in Oakville, which Oakville mm -hmm. in the 90s was not diverse. <laughs> I would say that I, me and my siblings and maybe a few other people were the diversity in our public school, but mm -hmm. my religious school was more diverse than my public school. I went mm. to religious school and there were fellow Black Jews. There were um, Jews from Cambodia, Jews from India. There were Japanese Jews. And so my religious school and my synagogue that I grew up with was mm. far more diverse than my like kindergarten class or my grade one class. Mm. Um, and so I always found it interesting when especially people were like, you don't look Jewish. And I was like, well, I, I look more closely related to what Jesus probably actually looks like. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, and just kind of always found that interesting about people's biases and, and people mm. having very certain images. And similar to what you said, I also find it interesting that a lot of people will say, like, you're the first Jewish person I met. And then they'll still hold those biases. And I'm like, I am your only example of a Jewish person that you know in real life. And you're still yeah. still don't believe they could be black, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the, that concept is still there. And I'm just like, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, because obviously there's the culture and whatnot, but I mean, in a lot of ways, it's it, it's it's still a belief system, and so it's yes. something it's something one can convert. Like you don't have to be born yes. Jewish. You can become Jewish. Sort Correct. Of. Or you can yes, be through conversion. Come, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so there's no reason why a Jew couldn't look like absolutely anybody on the planet. Yes. And I would say historically, because of how Jews migrated the world after being, you know, exiled, mm. that there are pockets of Judaism that exist globally. Um, mm. whose ancestral traits, you know, go back to the Middle East. If you think of, um, if you think of, of how people perceive Jews as well, they also have them in a frame of whiteness and not in a frame of Middle Eastern yep. and even their, their ancestry. When you think of the Holocaust, the reason the Jews were targeted <laughs> were because they weren't white enough. Um, exactly. yeah. And so thinking of that mindset too, and how ancestral 
even very white appearing Jews may mm -hmm. have that ancestral line from the mm -hmm. Middle East um, and not from Europe. And so considering that and considering, you know, the narrative and biases and what people are told, if you think of like unpacking all of our biases, it all comes down to learning history. I mean, mm -hmm. before I would say of recent within, you know, our lifespan, I remember learning as a child of framing Christopher Columbus in a positive light until we learn the other side. Yep. And so you kind of believe sure. what you're told. And I've just, I've always been confused how people think a certain way, but I can also appreciate that I grew up in a Jewish community. And so it was normal for me to see mm -hmm. the diversity within my community and, you know, similar how there are very racist images of black people in the media. Um, there are very racist images of Jews in the media, you know, mm -hmm. the big nose and stealing your money. And that's mm -hmm. what's being put out there in the media. And so that's what people are perceiving and understanding and digesting. Um, and I guess I had assumed people had seen beyond that or had seen more than that. But again, I grew up in a very Jewish community mm -hmm. um, for a lot of my extracurriculars as well. And especially when yeah. I moved to Toronto. Um, and so my vision of, you know, Jews that I consider my closest friends, they're very diverse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, and, and certainly, you know, with, you know, with all the events of the world we're not going to get into today, one thing we're seeing, though, is a lot of different Jewish faces, you know, in, in media yeah. now that, that we may not have seen before. And I'm seeing people that look like lots of different people. Uh, I've seen a lot of the, 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 I've seen a lot of the folks that you're sort of the, the kind of the hippie <laughs> level of, of Jew and, you know, and again, right away sort of just dismantling these stereotypes that I had formed yeah. in my head of what a Jewish person should look like and be like. Yeah. And I think it, it is, it is interesting that it is uh, a lot of people's first time considering that or experiencing that. Mm -hmm. um, but again, learning history like that. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of also have to step outside my learning mm -hmm. history and the the community that I grew up in to know that not everyone grew up in that community and other mm -hmm. people's views. I mean, some of my closest friends who went to Catholic school, for example, I was after they graduated Catholic school, I was their first Jewish friend that they made um, because in their, you know, little echo chamber of religion, they only grew up with Catholicism as the model. Yeah. And they grew up with other kids in elementary school and, and high school who also went to Catholic school. Yeah. And so that's all they knew, all their friends, all their you know, friends, parents, their entire, you know, street all went to the same school. And so that's kind of their reality and what they perceived as, you know, also existed outside of this teeny tiny school or this community was this just must be how Ontario is, or this just must be mm -hmm. how Canada is. Um, and kind of they made their assumptions based on their learning history. Yeah. Also, another point you made that was really interesting is around sort of how or at least one way that Juda Judaism has spread around the world is around, you know, folks, like you said, folks being exiled and then just having to go somewhere else to be safe. Um, and then, you know, it naturally just sort of spreads that way. Whereas Christianity was spread more in the context of colonization everywhere. So it yeah. was, you know, it was people essentially forcing Christianity onto, you know, onto, you know, going to Africa and spreading it around going, you know, coming over to North America and, you know, forcing all the indigenous folks to become Christian and so on and so forth. And, and, and so, yeah, it's interesting just, just the, 
you know, it's two two really different dynamics on kind of how yeah, it's all no, spread absolutely. around. Yeah. And I would say that um, at least from my understanding of Judaism, it's definitely not a religion that you go around trying to get other people to convert. Um, like they're, it's, it's, pretty hard to convert to Judaism mm. um, and so it's not kind of just like come join our club right um, right right go through a lot of steps I feel like the probably most common I don't know media representation of that would be like Charlotte from Sex and the City um, working to convert when she was getting married and stuff I that was the first thing that right, came to mind I'm right, sure there's right. other examples um, but just how how hard it really is to convert um, and and kind of the process by which you uh kind of agree to live in line with Jewish values and live yeah. in line with the Jewish teachings and, as opposed to being born into it. And obviously you can't tell me a whole lot. I mean, you had to, you were teaching this every weekend to kids and people, and there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot to learn here, but again, my, my surface level of understanding of sort of, I guess, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but sort of the, you know, the point of being Jewish, um, um, you know, comes from the point of being Christian. And so Christian, the the, the angle that I would, again, told, telling you about my sort of New Testament, Old Testament perspective, you know, and that the story that I was told as a kid was basically, um, you know, Jesus was a Jew and, and, um, and the Jews were we're waiting for a messiah um and uh and then the christians decided the, the christians who were maybe probably mostly jews initially you know basically decided oh, this is the guy and uh and uh and uh let's switch over to um you know this sort of new age um kind of thing and uh and start focusing on on the guy because he's come now so now you know now we gotta switch it up and create something new is is and i assume the answer is no but is 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 judaism a lot more than just a a, a group of folks that are are waiting for someone to come save them i know that's a very surface level butchered kind um, of description of things i i would like to say yes i'm not sure in terms of like your specific uh educational history and point of reference in judaism <laughs> yeah, but know, a lot of like the jewish teachings focus on mitzvahs and doing good deeds um Focus mm. on tikkun olam, which is mending the world. Focus mm. on um, social action. Um, mm. A lot of our, you know, religious holidays and our stories that we, you know, teach down from generation to generation is a lot of freeing other people from oppression and that nobody is mm. free until we're all free. Um, my mom was actually one of the founders of the, I want to say the Ontario chapter. Not sure if it's the Canadian. Hopefully she doesn't yeah. <laughs> get mad for me misreferencing her. Um, yeah. for like Blacks and Jews and dialogue. And so we mm. kind of talked a lot about the civil rights movement and a lot about um, the, you know, the story of Exodus and Moses during Passover comes mm -hmm. up a lot. And so it's a lot of teaching, um, passing down teachings that are in line with uh, social action, which are mm. referenced a lot in the Torah um, and which are referenced a lot in the stories that you taught, that you're taught growing up. Um, for me in my synagogue, and again, I can only speak to like my reform experience is we were challenged with a social action project um, whenever we became like a bar bat mitzvah. And so for my bat mitzvah, in addition to learning how to read and chant from the Torah and stand up and lead a whole service um, and reading the Torah and the Haftorah 
in doing the whole bat mitzvah spiel, um, we also had to kind of research and and learn about a social issue or a social action that mm. was really important to us. For cool. me, uh, and 13-year-old Sonia, um, really went deep into understanding the farm industry, uh, which resulted in me becoming a vegan. And so mm. at 13, I kind of learned almost a little too much about the horrors of the farming industry yeah, um, yeah. and decided at that point I didn't want to participate in it um, and yeah. uh, focused a lot of my energy on, you know, freeing oppressed animals in addition to obviously all of the global oppression of humans as well. But my um, project was really focused on, you know, understanding how animals are treated in the farming mm, industry. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that's what really drove me into becoming a vegan, um, first initially a vegetarian and then a vegan um, yeah. and kind of going through there. And so a lot of, a lot of the teachings really comes back to that value, that like Ooh. social action, making the world a better place making the world a more loving and accepting place. Yeah. I forgot we had that in common. That's awesome. <laughs> Veganism? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I've been vegan for 15 years now. Yeah, yeah. Same reason, animals. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You learn too much and you can't go back. <laughs> you can't. It's interesting. And I, I, I'm only going to tangent slightly. I'm not going to ask any weird questions, but um, it just reminds me of a conversation I'm, I'm, I have coming up um, with the, uh, and a, an Anuk researcher, uh, so she's she's up in kind of northern Alaska, and um, she's been studying um, 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 uh, what's what's the term she used uh, substance. Uh, so basically, basically the idea of of uh, using substance as a sort of a framework for um, uh, kind of as a kind of a prevention science framework for. Uh, basically for helping indigenous youth um and 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 and, and youth in the arctic and um and because the idea is that you know like this kind of just speaks to the your farming point that you know indigenous ways of being were pre-farming right they didn't do farming um yeah. and and at a very early age kids are taught to are taught that they have to provide for the family uh, and they have to be able to go out and hunt and they have to be able to go out and collect and 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 that their very first and, and again I know we're both vegans and we're talking about hunting here, <laughs> but their very first um they have to give entirely to the elders. So they learn right very early on that the the elders are the people that have to take care of it. And it's all about sharing resources and all that sort of thing. And they embed sort of all these different pieces into sort of this, you know being able to source your own food in the wild um um but then they also connect it there's another guy uh, michael yellowbird folks gotta google him um um he's 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 actually working at the university of manitoba but i think he's from um, uh, south dakota and and, uh, in one of the in one of the larger um uh, indian tribes down there and um he's been studying um um He's been he's been using Western science to validate indigenous ways of being, essentially, um, okay. to basically basically say to everybody, no, no, the way we used to do things makes a whole lot of sense, and here's why it worked so well, and here's why we lived so long, and here's all these things, mindfulness, like a whole lot around mindfulness. He's got these yeah. sort of studying like what to like when like indigenous folks, the mindfulness is just is just embedded in indigenous ways of being. And, and looking at people that are doing like 5,000 and 10,000 hours of meditation, not consecutive, but, you know, yeah. throughout their life and the actual brain, 
brain imaging studies showing the brain changes as a result. They talked a lot about farming, kind of messing things up. Talked a lot about um, 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 uh, earthing and grounding, you know, because and that essentially that the sneak and we're really tangenting here uh, 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 like that that sneakers were one of the worst health worth worst inventions ever ever created in the world as far as human health and that once sneakers were created um uh, most of the diseases started forming because we lost our connection to the earth wow um, um, and 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 the science behind it is that there's an electrical charge there's actually some 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 like rcts and some really good studies on this sort of electrical charge that goes from the body to the cool. ground worth looking into uh but yeah just just interesting that sort of farming is is such a colonial practice um well absolutely and that's here, not to right? say that there are there are obviously um a lot of communities that uh sustain themselves on animal um products um, yeah. and sure. and animal meats and byproducts yeah. um and I think that it's more of the farming industry that I have a problem yeah. with, as opposed yeah. to communities who, through their traditions and customs, yeah. have, you know, been able to not only celebrate that animal's life, but to also use every single piece of the animal and not let it go to waste. And that's the opposite of what our farming industries have done. And I feel like a lot of people, when um, vegans get together, they're like, oh, well, what if you had nothing else to eat? And it's like, okay, well, this is a hypothetical. I live yes. in Ontario where that is never going to be the case. And if anything, I can grow my own food. And so you're saying yeah. if I was on a deserted island that I couldn't yeah. grow a single food, but there happened to be a pig alive, that what was the pig eating? And so all of these yeah. hypothetical questions, and yeah. it comes down to, I live in a way where I do as minimal harm as I can to the earth. And yeah. so for me, at this time, I don't need to use leather products. I don't need yeah. to use any animals, um, meat or animal byproducts or dairy yeah. or eggs or any of that. Yeah. I don't need eat any of that to sustain myself um yeah, and same. you know that that's the reality <laughs> so yeah, it's yeah. doing the best in the environment that you live in i feel yeah. Is, is yeah my version of veganism um and in my 20 plus years of giving up meat i haven't once faced an instance where it my choice was go hungry or consume animal products exactly <laughs> yeah exactly well i think and, and this woman she's studying a lot of the folks in the north and, and up, up in the arctic where you know up until sort of more recent science, um, you know, um, um, you know, advances, one couldn't grow food. Yeah. Right. And so meat was the only source of sustenance, you know, um, they would literally, they would literally die because there was nothing. Yeah. Else and there's eat, definitely right? communities globally where that yeah. is their reality for sure. Yeah. yeah. But you know, it's, it, it yeah. Oh, this will be another episode one day fun because <laughs> uh, i could really digress on veganism today but let's move back to kind of um uh what we were talking about here so uh, a lot of this kind of uh you know clearly you know, you know a lot of different intersections and we can add veganism in there as well um um, um have probably led to uh you know some of the work you're doing what what um so you have a PhD, but I noticed you don't have the little D after the BCBA. Uh, is that it's because true. is that because you you didn't see the point of 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 spending money on something that makes no difference, or because you have the, the wrong kind of PhD? Um, I'd say more of the former. Um, yeah. I, my at the time where I did my PhD, I believe, unless it has recently changed, mm. um, the PhD course sequence didn't get that like automatic accreditation. You had to mm. go through and find all your syllabi. Um, right, and I right. have not 
mustered up the motivation to do all of that to yeah. <laughs> add the d to my title um and in practice yeah. i don't yeah. feel that it necessarily changes yeah. my ability to do the yeah. work that i want to do so I, cer- I certainly don't think any less of you um and so your phd <laughs> is in behavior analysis then yeah yeah so um i continued on at the chicago school yeah and so what what was your kind of your primary kind of focus in in your phd what were you working on uh, so in my master's, my thesis was um, on healthy eating in children. So um, I Ooh. studied how to help children make healthy food choices um, by using kind of high fives and tickles. It was a really fun study to <laughs> to run um, where I present kind of fruits and vegetables as an option and chips and cookie as an option. And the only difference would be like, OK, if you choose a healthy choice, you get a high five. Um, and it was cool to see how valuable high fives are to kids wow. <laughs> in terms of selecting the healthier choice. Um, and then my PhD dissertation uh, was on superstition, and it kind of came about from a, uh, a lucky shirt that I have um, that I still own, um, but yeah. that I used throughout high school and undergrad, and it kind of just became a running joke. And then I kind of yeah. wanted to study more about why does this actually calm me down? Like why? Um, not that I personally believe in superstition in the sense of, you know, knocking on wood and, and all mm. of that stuff, but there was something about my lucky shirt that definitely made me feel more mentally prepared. And whether it was just the, you know, ability to decrease my anxiety Mm -hmm. uh, to a point where I could focus on the exam questions or what it would be. But it was more so, especially in undergrad, became this little joke of like, nope, Sonia has her lucky shirt on. Um, And it did. It definitely made me feel calmer and and better to take it. And so I I studied more of that um, and Mm -hmm. in the sense of like a good luck charm and whether that would enhance um, performance on simple tasks. but I always, I always just found that interesting. And I'm sure that goes back to my minor of just trying to understand people's beliefs and superstition. Including well, that's what I was going to ask. Did some, that, did some of that kind of come up in, in the religious studies? Because I know for one per, one person's superstition could be another person's religion, you know, like, like I Absolutely. might think, I might think the things you're doing are just superstitious behavior, but it's actually aspects of your religion and religious practices. But the, if I'm ignorant and don't know anything about them, I'm like, Oh, she needs to, you know, believe in this, this, you know, this God guy in order to, you know, in order to, you know, uh, you know, have a good dinner. Like, is that superstition, you know? Yeah. And I think that like what you said, one person's superstition might be another person's way of life or might be another person's belief system or religion. Um, I think that there's a lot of beautiful uh, connections between religion and science. I think my mind and lifestyle is definitely more science oriented than religious oriented mm. um especially in terms of Judaism i think i'm more uh practicing in terms of values as opposed to uh necessarily like religious beliefs mm. um and kind of understanding the interconnectedness of science and and religion um Mayim Bailik, uh, i really i really appreciate her interpretation of science and religion and how she interprets the magnificence of the universe and um, everything that she's studied, like she has her PhD, I believe in neuroscience Hmm. Um, and kind of as she was going through school, because she's a fairly religious Jew, I believe she's Orthodox. Um, And Hmm. so just seeing her view of combining Judaism and science and how she Hmm. can hold both beliefs at the same time and understand and believe wholeheartedly in the science that she studied and that she practices. And then also how she um, frames that in the sense of, you know, God's creation because she is religious. <laughs> the second secret word is ethics. And how she frames mm. that in terms of 
um, all of that, uh, what we may frame as superstition, um, she would yeah. frame as religion. Is there, is there, is there? She's uh, also a vegan, by the way. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Okay. Is there, <laughs> this is a thing. Is, is there, uh, well, the social justice piece, I mean, you know, kind of feeds that. I, 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 yeah. I probably a lot of Jewish vegans. Um, <laughs> is, I was going to say the um, oh, with the science bit is is there a and this may be sort of depending on the different like you said the different sort of forms of Judaism um, is there a clash like as far as like sort of the creationist sort of perspective and the science perspective there or is that uh, I'm I'm sure there is the more yeah. religious you get on the yeah. Jewish spectrum. Um, yeah. Again, I can only speak to like my reform experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I will say that my rabbi, Rabbi E, Rabbi Englander, growing up, he, yeah. he definitely entertained all of my questions <laughs> growing up and everything awesome. that I brought up yeah. um, when I was preparing for my bat mitzvah. And I remember, um, like during some of his his discussions during services and and talking about you know why mm. can't both be true you know who says mm. that in the seven days that you know the torah teaches us about the earth creation that you know light didn't exist so we don't know how long a day was maybe the first three days were millions and billions of years like we don't mm. know because yeah, we weren't there and so really too. kind of yeah. reframing it in the sense of the absolute truth that we hold as mm -hmm. what we define as a day but also putting it in the context of well, what was a day back then? We don't know the length. So like, could both be true? Like, why mm. does one negate the other? Um, again, I'd say I'm definitely more values-based. I have a much more science-oriented mind um, mm. in terms of superstition versus not superstition. Um, and But I remember having those poor conversations and my rabbi being very patient with me as I kind of explored who I am as a, as yeah, a, yeah. As a scientist, especially um, growing up in that community. Well, I've often wondered if some of this also comes out of, you know, poor translations of things yeah. too, right? You know, I mean, uh, I, I just, I, I, I find it hard to believe some of the English translations, particularly of the of the New Testament side of things, and and then how those are interpreted and so on and so forth. And you know, and there's a lot of there seems to be a lot, a lot of kind of whiteness in in sort of how some of those things are interpreted um and sure. so you, you got you, you know you gotta wonder you know this is these are ancient ancient languages like how far back does judaism go like is it like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years like 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 as far back as we talk about sort of the indigenous folks in, on our side of the world kind of thing well if you think I would say, like, I don't know the obsolete number um, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in terms of that fact, but even if you think of, like, our calendars yeah. um, and the concept of, like, before and after Christ um, yeah. and the however many thousands of years BCE before Christ and yeah. everything, yeah, yeah. and then knowing that that frame of reference, whenever that time started, was Jesus, who was a Jew. So it's going to be mm. before then. Yeah. So in terms of Judaism. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Probably a lot more. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Right on. And but the very specific year, I, I don't, I'm not, uh, it's not coming to mind right now. <laughs> just, just kind of one last question about it before we kind of get into some of your work is just about sort of finding information. So 
again, again, today, this day and age with sort of all of the crazy stuff that's happening in the world, there's also lots and lots of new information out there. And I think a lot, a lot of folks are, you know, and I'm air quoting here, learning about Judaism and learning about, you know, the Middle East and, 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 the, and the peoples and, and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of, you know, well, that's not true. This is true. That's not true. This is true. You don't know what happened. You don't know what happened. And, and so I've been somewhat afraid to even do any research on this stuff because I, I don't know if it's valid or not. And so what's some sort of a, a good sort of source for someone if they just wanted to learn more about Judaism and, and that would be a, a safe, trusting resource. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, I mean, speaking to Jewish people would probably be your first bet, especially yeah. um, at decreasing a lot of the biases and just understanding um, who right. they are as people. Um, yeah. I would say connecting with different um, Jewish communities. Um there's a lot of organizations. Um, my mom worked for the Union for Reform Judaism. They have a lot mm. of resources um, and they are Canadian and American. Um, mm. used to be the Canadian Council for Reform Judaism. Mm. Um, and so they they definitely have a lot of resources. I think that mm. there's also a lot of, um, there's a lot of definitely, uh, I would say like there's a lot of more traditional uh, Jewish resources that you you can like go to, you know, in terms of just understanding the mm. Torah and what the Torah teaches um, yeah. for those that are interested in religious texts, mm. um, starting there <laughs> um, and yeah. just kind of like breaking that down. Um, in terms of specific books, um, maybe oh. I will, I know that uh, my friend John and he, they were uh, recently started reading more about Judaism. And so they actually mm. Uh, acquired a few book recommendations that I actually mm. had never heard of. Cool. Um, and so uh, I would definitely ask them um, for those. Yeah, they're, they're going to find yeah. stuff for sure. Yeah. 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 They love reading. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. 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 Right on. No, that's cool. And, and I think you, like I said, just talking to folks, it's, it's, I think, you know, I think a, there's a lot of folks like me that are, you know, pretty ignorant to a lot of this stuff. And, uh, and a lot of our perceptions have been shaped by white Hollywood. Right. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and that's why we get the Seinfelds and the whoever's of the world, because, you know, those those were the people that were allowed to sort of tell that's the story you were exposed to. Yeah. 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 And so it's really easy to sort of assume that, you know, every Jew is white. Every Jew lives in New York and, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and has, a you know, a thick Bronx accent and um, and. Uh, and uh you know and every jew has a really you know obvious you know last name that that has an ei somewhere in it um <laughs> and, and and so on and so you know i i mean th this conversation alone is i've learned so much more than i've ever known um um so i appreciate that and i appreciate you for that so yeah. <laughs> what um so your phd what it really has not a lot to do with um, kind of the work you're doing now. So how did you get into kind of the work you're doing now with, and, and, and some of the papers you've written recently and with, with, and with those other folks, including John and Eve? Um, I think a lot of uh, like the work in terms of like cultural humility and, and the paper on anti-racism, I think, mm. you know, anti-racism is really working towards breaking down those systems of oppression. And I feel like mm. that was embedded with 
in me from my social action background. Yeah. Um, another thing that I have found really interesting is I feel like people, and it, it is a good thing, are waking up to a lot of the atrocities that are occurring globally. Um, and I feel like a lot of people for the very first time are learning about Sudan and Darfur. And I remember starting mm-hmm. one of the chapters at my high school for students taking action now in Darfur, Stan Canada. And we did protests yeah. and we did rallies. Um, and this was back in the early 2000s that we were talking about Darfur and Sudan. And then when I see people posting about like, oh, my God, did you know this is happening? I was like, it's it's been happening for a very long time. Super long time. Um, yeah. And so I think people are kind of waking up and almost like leaving their little bubble that they existed yeah. in. Um, and I feel like a lot of my work um, and my passion, especially for cultural humility, is I, as a Black Jewish person, always existed out of, outside of everybody else's bubbles. Mm-hmm. and so my existence never really aligned with most educational systems, most Mm. uh, global systems. Um, You know, if you think about just the North American calendars that we use, you know, I had Easter off. My family doesn't celebrate Easter, but if Mm -hmm. I wanted to celebrate Passover, I had to ask for time off school. Or when Mm. I was working, I had to use vacation days or personal days to celebrate Mm. my own religion. And then like, yeah, sure. It was great having a long weekend on Easter for a holiday. I don't Mm. celebrate, but that wasn't important to me. The fact that I had to take my personal paid time off to practice my religion was always something that stood out to me. Um, Or even in elementary school, um, you know, if you think about like kindergarten crafts and just coming home with kindergarten and coming home in kindergarten with uh, Santa Claus coloring page or making ornaments giving those to my mom, that was very mm. strange that, you know, you didn't think to, hey, let's print off a menorah coloring page mm-hmm. or a dreidel mm-hmm. coloring page for a child. And so I feel like I was existing in like a cookie cutter educational system that wasn't really tailored to me. Um, and I always found it interesting, especially as I got into practice within ABA, how much that extended into traditional ABA practice. Um, mm. And I know that I connected with a lot of other um, families who had similar stories where they their family history didn't necessarily align with what would be like a traditional educational system, whether it was religion or the family dynamics. Um, even thinking of like, I grew up in a single parent household. I was still asked to make a Father's Day card. <laughs> and mm. so little things like that about how, mm. from my perception, it doesn't take a lot of effort to be more individualized with our traditional education. Um, and ABA is supposed to be individualized. And I find yep. that it is often so cookie cutter of people teaching the same thing in the same way that a lot of my motivation came from kind of understanding that. And I think some of my aha moments were um, in Chicago with a Jewish family that I was supporting um, and kind of assuming that other people supporting this family had the same knowledge as me. And then understanding that they didn't when it was, you know, time to have snack time. Like, oh, wait, they can't have that. That has gelatin in it. Gelatin is not kosher. You need mm. to look for this. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. It's like, okay, so this isn't, it's at the forefront of my mind because I grew up with it being at the forefront of my mind. But a lot of people kind of just assume one size fits all for a lot of mm-hmm. uh, this. And, and then once seeing that that extended into ABA, um, knowing the type of ABA that I wanted to provide to my clients was providing programs that are meaningful for them. You know, if it's Mm. meaningful for your family to have dinner together or for your family to have 
um, understand the calendar changes during Ramadan and Eid or understanding the calendar changes during Passover, um, really breaking down that so that your child knows like, hey, the next week is going to look really different because during Passover, we can't eat leavened bread. Here's why. And helping your child understand that so that they can participate mm. to the best of their ability in your religious um, ceremonies and celebrations and, and kind of knowing how valuable and important all of those non filling in the Abel's boxes, VB map boxes, programs really can be. Um, and then also having an appreciation of, of learning history. Um, mm. I feel like other kind of aha moments of, wow, other people don't think this way. Um, I remember doing assessments and this sweet little girl, she looked at a bagel and she said, there's no icing on that donut. And I was like, you've mm. never seen a bagel before. Mm -hmm. And so like, I can't test you on, you know, can you label a bagel? Because you've never, it's not in your learning history. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that if you have somebody, especially, you know, in our country and, and in Ontario, we are extremely diverse and we have a lot of newcomers to Canada mm -hmm. that have very different learning histories than us. And so ensuring that if we're assessing, you know, are you able to identify or sort or receptively identify or label all of these different things that it's consistent with what you've learned in your learning history and not my expectations of what a five-year-old Canadian should know you know mm. most you might not grow up on pizza and burgers and hamburgers but if I ask you you know what is it and you can say falafel that's great you can label a common food in your home mm. um, and so really kind of taking the time to understand somebody's learning history and again it's stuff that I feel like I was doing in practice and I kind of mm. took me a while to realize that other people were not mm. cool <laughs> Uh, and so, and so you seem to be doing a bunch of this work with, a, a certain group of folks is, 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 is there a reason for that? Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, authors, the authors seem to, you seem to. Oh, have on the papers. Um, that's, that's my there. school crew. Um, okay. we all grew up ABA wise, um, and did our masters and some of us continued on to our PhD together. And so. We've studied together. We like to geek out together. We like to nice. write papers together. Um, I feel like we all kind of have very similar passion and interests and also come from very diverse backgrounds. <laughs> um, cool. And so we all kind of were like, yeah, this is this is an important piece. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I feel like it kind of just all came together. Uh, we found each other in grad school and kind of yeah, solidified yeah, yeah. Our, our group. So... Uh, I was I read a I was reading a couple of your papers the the look in the mirror one um, mm -hmm. uh, how the field of behavior analysis can become anti racist which is uh, I think one we're really going to focus on today and then I, I took a look at your the one on 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 Syria which is cool um, yeah um, uh, but a little more technical for my brain um, <laughs> uh, you know when you're starting to get into some of that Sigurd Glenn stuff. That's when my, my brain starts to get all mushy with medic contingencies and things like that. Um, it's well, cool I think stuff. the main thing about the, the Syrian refugee one, the thing that stands yeah. out for me is just mm. having people understand that the stories that were told in America and Canada, especially, aren't mm. usually the whole story. Yeah. And so, you know, we might be fed a certain narrative, whether it's through the media or through our teachers mm -hmm. in school. And so when you're really analyzing behaviors to not look at the immediate things that you see on the news and drawing yes. these comparisons and how a lot of, you know, the increase um, in violence that we saw after 9-11 came from those images being just paired, compared, yep. paired, 
And yep. so really just taking a step back and looking at the global context of like, who are the entities, you know, who are the puppet masters? Because mm-hmm. who's controlling Canada, like Canada's response? Who's yep. controlling America's response? And really taking that huge step back of why did this news network only show this side of the story um, and mm. kind of understanding global events from that view like if you really mm-hmm. want to analyze it you have to take a ginormous step back <laughs> and, yeah. and really look at it from that level yeah for sure so let's uh so let's talk a bit about the other paper and also what you're going to be talking about uh in february so maybe um maybe tell me a little bit of what's happening in february and then we'll kind of go back to the, the we'll dig into the paper a bit yeah. Um, so I'm going to be doing a workshop on uh, culturally humble ABA services, um, mm. just talking about my experience in Ontario um, mm. and in Chicago and how everything kind of came to be in combination with um, the, you know, the study. It, it, it all uh, comes comes kind of down to, and I feel like stemmed from a lot of the work that I did on that study, um, that mm. paper as well, the look in the mirror um, and how the field can become anti-racist mm-hmm. um, and really discussing how we as a field can enhance our services. I feel like ABA kind of reached a point where we just wanted to push out as many graduates as possible and kind of just fed them the same, you know, basic intro to ABA knowledge and um, how institutions and also individual practitioners can do um, more to better equip instructor therapists and better equip BCBAs by by providing multiple exemplars for uh, the Mm -hmm. scenarios that we're taught on by providing, you know, different examples of how to properly assess a learning history or um, how to test conceptually and not, uh, you know, just flip to the back of the ables and read the appendix and read it word for word and then be Mm -hmm. like, nope, you can't tack anything. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that individual may know all of their colors in Spanish and you're Mm -hmm. teaching the equivalents from Spanish to English. You're not teaching the concept of colors. They know what blue Mm -hmm. is. They just don't know the funny word that you call blue because that's Mm -hmm. not how they were raised. And so um kind of introducing people to the concept of how um our ABA in practice as it was initially intended I'd argue was really to provide that socially valid ABA care mm. um which is really creating those those meaningful changes in individuals mm. lives you know the changes that are going to uh support them socially <laughs> to succeed in the communities that they exist in and then from the you know cultural humility lens in order to do that you kind of have to identify and acknowledge your own biases and and understand that you don't know everything about everyone else and that all you you are really good at knowing is ABA and it's our job Mm -hmm. as practitioners to use our knowledge in ABA to support this individual with succeeding in their community um, with their family and their learning history and Mm -hmm. kind of going back to the concepts and not the what I always call cookie cutter ABA. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, and some of it kind of goes back to, you know, you so you say, you know, we're doing ABA, but some of this kind of goes back to sort of the origins, the origins of ABA itself. Uh, and there's one line and, 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 uh, you know, and I, I know it's hard to sort of pick a line from a paper and, 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 and hope you'll have all the details around it. But um, um, uh, there was one line where it said, it's not surprising that behavior analysis, which evolved from Eurocentric models, dot 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 dot. What's that about? What 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 do you mean by that? 
Well, I think when looking at the prominent people in the field who really kind of pushed the field ahead and mm-hmm. their learning history and looking yep. at what they may have valued mm-hmm. and that Eurocentric model. Um, and so if you think, you know, what I was talking about previously with uh, like the Ontario public school system, mm-hmm. that model too is a Eurocentric model. It was viewed that, you know, everyone will have Christmas off. Everyone yep. will do a Christmas holiday. And so the model that yep. was created doesn't necessarily reflect all of the communities that it's now serving. Mm. Um, and so really kind of understanding that that was the origin and that it is a product of the people who created it and their learning histories um, mm-hmm. and what they may have valued at the time of creation um, in terms of, you know, those core things that we are taught in ABA um, mm-hmm. and understanding that and then using the concepts and knowledge and principles of ABA to also apply it to all these other communities mm-hmm. yeah, i mean the, the title of the article is how behavior analysis can become anti-racist and what i've learned from reading a few ibram kendi books is that you're one or the other you're either racist or you're anti-racist there's no sort of in between you can't just be not racist because that's sort of some bizarre you know ob- oblivion space where you know, you're essentially nothing is happening. It's kind of like you're living in a vacuum. And uh, because the moment you're, you know, if, you, if you're if you're not doing things to sort of, you know, uplift or dispel myths or or, or uplift others and 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 you know, listen to other voices and and provide you know equity and so on and so forth, then you're contributing to racism by not doing any of those things. And so he really points out that yeah, you gotta be one or the other. You can't just be sitting on the sidelines, sitting on the fence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the implication here then is that behavior analysis is racist uh, because the paper is how can we become anti-racist? And so what, w- Besides sort of some of the obvious, you know, examples you've given about a couple of these curriculums, and I, I use the I use Abel's VB map examples quite a bit because they are they're just they're they're easy to pick on. I they're mean, convenient. They're, you know, they're, they're, they they've got some really obvious targets that don't make any sense to a whole ton of different cultures, um, and so a lot of folks and and I've heard lots of folks talk about sort of culturally responsive care and essentially taking those assessments and you know switching up the targets to make them yeah. more culturally related you know so that's a great example but what what are some of the other problems besides Abel's and the vb map with 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 behavior analysis well i think even if you look at how we're taught aba um mm. and if you look at the, the examples that were given in the scenarios that were given and even ethics scenarios on the bacb exam and you look at the core texts that are used to teach us, I think one way that we could move uh, in the anti-racist way would be to create create textbooks, create learning stimuli, create examples that would create more well-rounded individuals who can Mm. think critically um, and provide care to ideally anyone, but to a wide variety of Mm. people that they may have been you know, better equipped to, you know, understanding something as simple as, you know, individuals who are kosher or who are halal, they don't eat pork, can't give them Mm -hmm. marshmallows or gummy bears or gummy worms. Um, And so even stuff like that, 
kind of embedding all of those examples will help the field go beyond the very specific mm-hmm. Western Eurocentric model yeah. that is kind of taught and used in all of the appendices and used in all of the examples and used in, you know, and everything. And I think yeah. in addition to that is really um, ensuring that we are supporting uh, the creation and, and maintenance of uh, organizations, you know, um, mm-hmm. and uh, like for elections, for, you know, board members, for everything that we're working towards creating a more mm-hmm. diverse and equitable representation of what ABA is now. You know, mm-hmm. ABA is extremely diverse right now, um, whether mm-hmm. it's the communities that we serve who are very diverse, um, the practitioners that are practicing ABA, the researchers, um, and ensuring that there are mental mentors and that there are organizations and that they are represented um, within mm. these organizations and how huge that is. Um, you know, my friend uh, Cam, he was a TA at the time when I was studying and then became a professor at TCS. Mm. Um, but when I look at the representation of who taught me, there was no one who looked like me that taught mm. me. Um, mm. And so, you know, just thinking of that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's how we can really work work towards uh, increasing the diversity, especially in like supervisory roles, um, yep. in uh, academic roles, um, at ABAI, at the BACB, at you know local chapters and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, it's interesting you talk about sort of the, you know, all the all the sort of resources we have that are and and you know, seminal textbooks and writings that are all very Eurocentric and. Yeah, I've I've joked on several episodes that it's it's funny that our our main book is 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 white nicknamed book. the white book and and how and how white it is, you know, yeah. uh, in in kind of so many ways. Um, uh, so it, it it's fun. It's funny. I like I think we really do need a new white book. Um, yeah. that's you know maybe a different color and um, <laughs> um, yeah, with, with 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 some some different topics in there. Um. So, so what? And what about sort of research-wise? Like historically, uh, has has research been also racist in 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 ABA or at least Eurocentric? I think with research, I think ABA, um, as with any other research area, kind of research flows where the money goes, and so yeah. where people are willing to spend money for research, um, which yeah. within our field is a lot of. The autism community, especially, mm. um, is a is a large population that we support. Um, and here in Ontario, for example, the uh, Ontario Autism Program is funded, whereas other groups of children um, with various learning needs right. they aren't fully funded. And yeah. so, even thinking of the diversity amongst uh, you know the disability communities, yeah. um, and and kind of working to ensure that everyone has access to ABA services who may benefit from it um, and kind of mm-hmm. looking at those again, like that, that system, that system yeah. at play of who is, yeah. who's making these decisions and, and how can we have more people access the care that they need? The reason I asked the question is because I know I had Dr. Evan August on a while back and, and he's a psychologist, black psychologist um, doing some really cool things. And um, he, uh, he wrote a paper that essentially described the history of 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 psychology over the last fifty years and sort of the reason for the formation of of of, of the Association of Black Psychologists, um, uh, which in in many ways is is kind of separate from the APA, uh, because 
all of the research was very, you know, like straight up, you know, no, no yeah. argument racist. Like it, it was, and I've talked about this in a few episodes, but you know, all the research to sort of determine the diagnoses and the problems were done on black folk, black and indigenous folks. Um, and all of the research to solve the problems, the subjects were then all white folks. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, and that, that history goes up until today. Like there was examples from in, you know, from, from sort of current times of how, you know, that's still the case. How does, how does ABA research compare? Because I mean, historically, I mean, we do go back, you know, a good 50, 60, 70 years when a lot of this, and when a lot of the sketchy psychology research was happening. Yeah. And I think, I mean, definitely, if you look at our history and the populations that um, research was conducted on and the populations that it's then reported on, it is really important to look at, you know, if you're studying the effects, I'm going to throw it out there, like the effects of a token economy system on classroom attendance. Mm-hmm. Was this at a private school that was predominantly white or was this mm-hmm. also effective at um, a school that was predominantly black or mm-hmm. a school that was um, predominantly white in a lower social economic status. And so mm-hmm. looking at mm-hmm. all of those other variables and how it's reported and how would we be able to decipher the effectiveness of, you know, the protocol or the effectiveness of, you know, the teaching strategy that's referenced mm-hmm. in relation to the population that it was it was studied on. Mm. So this article is great because I, I love these kinds of articles because they and there's there's been a few of them out um um uh in recent times mostly published i think in in this journal um where you know you do a really good job of outlining all the problems but then you actually put some steps in for things you know we could do to do better like i, I love these guys analysts love a good a good list of things to do <laughs> yeah, a good list of action items i mean and, and, and behavior analysis practice from you know i i you know, I've, I, I'm kind of neurodiverse myself and I'm very literal in, in a lot of my thinking. And so I really like, you know, direct, explicit instruction um, in yeah. terms of kind of how to do things. And so I really like kind of, you know, and, and, and you, you kind of go across sort of different levels. You talk about sort of, you know, kind of the science overall. You talk about, you know, higher education. You talk about, you know, uh, organizations and providers and then you get right down into sort of um, more individual practitioners and stuff which i think is kind of the focus of your your presentation in february is more on that individual level um one area i think that that you know i i feel like we're kind of behind the times in is 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 in our big organizations um you know uh kind of comparing to some other ones that i've seen you know again i you know i mentioned you know things like you know, the association with black psychologists which has been around since i think it started like just after martin luther king um did his presentation to aba a- the apa in i think 68 or 69 and not long after that i think in 70 they formed the absi you know so early on like they were you know there there was you know some there was stuff happening and i look at i looked i looked into like social work and counseling and you know and a lot of these other you know allied helping fields that are comparable to us um in, in a lot of ways and you know they put a lot of stuff in place long before george floyd was murdered um you know um you know they yeah. were they were on it you know um i don't know you know i mean i know there there's still lots of work to be done and i've interviewed folks from you know from from nasp and from the american council association and 
and the National School Counselor Association and 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 some social worker folks. And you know, they're still they still have a lot of work to do, and they're still doing a lot of the work we're doing. But they do have they do seem to have a lot more frameworks to work in, and 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 you know, you know, more you know, sort of sensitive ethics codes and whatnot. Um, how how are how are our our organizations doing? I think our our kind of for most folks, I think our three big ones are ABAI, so the, so the International Association of Behavior Analysis, the BACB, which is the Behavior Analyst Certification Board that gives us all of our BCBA credentials and whatnot. And then there's the APBA, which is the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts, which is maybe maybe slightly newer and, and slightly in slightly a different kind of role than the other ones. How 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 are these big groups doing? Uh, in terms of their diversity or their work towards anti-racism? Well, both. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I think if you, um, and we were talking about this before, if you even look at like the, the diversity amongst board members, or if you look mm -hmm. at the diversity amongst uh, individuals who are making the, or updating the ethics codes um, mm -hmm. and what knowledge are they using to create these up updates and changes? And mm -hmm. um, what is the lens that they are viewing the, ethical problems from <laughs> that they are mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. suggesting these ethical changes. Yep. Um, and so I think that we have, we have a lot of, we have a lot further that we need to go. Mm. Um, I think like what you were saying, that it seems like our field was projected more uh, after George Floyd and, and after um, everything has kind of transpired as opposed yep. to be more uh, in line from the beginning. Um, and that it's more of uh, kind of trying to, I don't even know what the right word is, but almost creating like new versions of it as opposed to like starting off on the right track initially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it's uh, it, uh, it it looked like, you know, some of these organizations were starting to do some things. And I know it's been, I know it's been tough for some of them because <laughs> because and, and I don't, I'm not trying to sort of give them forgiveness here but but it, it, it's not just about anti-racism anymore right it's yeah. it's really social justice in general now and social justice issues in general now and so like for example I know you know there's a lot of concerns with you know how ABAI and the BACB you know um um you treat autistic folks um, yeah. and, and consider the, uh, consider sort of the opinions of autistic folks. Um, you know, I mean, everyone is, anyone who's a behavior analysis in behavior analysis will be familiar with, you know, the, 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 the contingent electric shock stuff, um, Absolutely. you know, which, which is still a thing, you know, that hasn't gone away, hasn't changed, uh, you know, uh, but we've started to see, you know, groups like, I think, I think of, of the three, I think APBA is probably doing the most, um, 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 uh, but, you know, ABAI, you know, seemed, seemed to put out a lot of statements on things. That's you know, what I was going to say. I was saying a lot of people initially put out statements or yeah. signaled that they were moving in the right direction, but the extent to which that was followed through or that additional yeah. actions were taken, um, I yeah. feel is fairly minimal. <laughs> yeah. Like apparently they developed, I know they developed some kind of diversity task force at ABAI, but I don't, know much if anything has happened there i know they have a facebook page and i feel like i'm the only one that posts on it 
um, <laughs> when I share an episode every week. Um, um, and so it, it just doesn't seem like like much is happening in these organizations. Or that it's their priority focus at this time. Yeah. That they yeah. kind of created it and checked the box that, you know, okay, well, we, we made this initiative or we made this post or we made this group and now this group has to do the work as opposed to yeah. supporting the group from that systems level with yeah. carrying out, you know, the intended purpose. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of colleagues that have just completely, you know, stopped being members of ABA and then pulled out entirely and, 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 and have shifted over to APBA instead. Um, yeah. You know, um, I think, you know, uh, because it, it sounds, and, and I don't know that the APBA is, you know, doing great work or not. I, I, I just, it just sounds like they might be doing a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, then, I'm very similar. I feel like a lot of my um, friends and colleagues and fellow behavior analysts have definitely distanced themselves from ABAI. Yeah, yeah, and and, and in fact, a lot of them, a lot of them, and myself included. I mean, um, I know Baba has now really become, you know, my favorite organization in ABA these days. Yeah, um, um, and I was at such an awesome conference last year, and really the best conference that I've ever been to ever. <laughs> Um, of any kind for any job I've ever had. Um, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they really know how to, they really know how to support, support. They know, really know how to create a sense of community. And I don't think these other groups have done that, but the BACB is always been the one I think of the most concerned because they have, because they're an organization that we can't, you know distance ourselves from yeah distance ourselves from we have no choice but the especially well we you know being you know i think americans can't Uh, i think in canada i mean in ontario you guys are now probably kind of stuck with them too with 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 licensure and whatnot but for the rest of the country you know uh, you know uh, you know i think we we have a little more flexibility around we're actually transitioning to the college of psychology under ontario Right. Oh, so that that'll be completely non-BACB then, right? They won't um, be the BCBA. Anymore? I think they're still working out the individual titles yeah. and roles. Um, but yeah. for example, like the registered behavior technician and the BCABA mm-hmm. titles, um, are going to be under like uh, what is it called? Like protected terms. And so yeah. BCBAs will still. But in terms of who's gonna like, we're going to be regulated under the College of Psychology in Ontario. Like, will you? Will you? Will you? And, and I don't want to dig too deep into you know, licensure and the college stuff that's happening in Ontario, but in order to join the college and become a, you know, a certified whatever, um, will you need to have a BCBA? So I think currently there are multiple routes that you can go, one mm-hmm. of which is having the BCBA and experience. Right. Um, and right. then there's also ways um, if you have like mm-hmm. uh, gotcha. ABA courses um, but like a master's in counseling right. or something like there are different avenues that you can go yeah. under the, okay. the new college. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but, but really. But yes, Americans are, are going to have. Americans are, mo- are most kind of, you know, stuck with that because essentially I think licensure and, and insurance and whatnot seems to require yeah. that. I mean, it sounds Absolutely. like some folks are able to be under the QABA. I've heard of some folks being sort of QABA certified, you know, it's tough when you've got like, like, like an organization like that. And so they, and so I think probably the the biggest sort of, you know, influence the BACB can kind of have on, in terms of anti-racist action, it, it, it might be the ethics code. 
I'd say the ethics code. And I think also the representation, ensuring mm. that, you know, our certification board and the members of the board and the uh, all the branches of the BACB, that they reflect the behavior analyst population that mm-hmm. exists that are providing the care and yeah. the population that we're, that we're serving. Like it would be fantastic if they had uh, autistic individuals that were supporting the board and supporting the ethics and supporting Absolutely. all of that. Yeah. And yeah. in addition to ensuring that the board members are diverse and represent, you know, the yeah. communities that uh, are providing behavior analytic yeah. care. Well, and it's, it's so interesting that sort of, Again, post George Floyd, because a lot of this is happening after, um, you know, and I think there, I think George Floyd is part of the reason why you're able to write articles like this because folks will publish them now. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. You know, I know folks probably there. There, I know there's a few examples like you know, like like Anita Lee and and Elizabeth Guzfong and 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 Kuzui Matsuda who have you know written some good stuff pre 2020. But not too many folks. Um, and so post-2020 has, you know, opened up this door to sort of, you know, have more conversations. And I sort of was under the impression, you know, on some level that behavior analysis was now recognizing, in particular, that, the, that there were Black professionals in the field. Um, yeah. Because sort of pre-2020, you know, folks like Dr. Nasia Serencioni Olizi, who's like just a legend now, you know, um, in <laughs> my fantastic. mind. fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I, no one would have ever heard of her in 2019. Um, um, you know, besides, you know, folks maybe in Illinois that, you know, are, that, that were sort of close to her. Like um, significantly fewer people, yes. Exactly. I think she still had a name for herself, but yeah. But, but, but maybe she had a name for herself more locally, but she didn't yeah. have a name for herself in my neck of the woods, right? Um, Fair. And so... And and you know I, I interviewed um, a bunch of folks um, uh, on on um, on the uh, culturally responsive pedagogy article they wrote, um, 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 and you know some of these folks, a lot of these folks have been in the field for 30, 40 years, and you know you, and and again hearing about their work was you know I think unless you were sort of in those circles. You yeah. know, you, you weren't kind of hearing about this stuff. So point being that sort of post-2020. And, and I think that also goes back to what we were previously talking about in terms of like the textbooks and who's being yeah. referenced and what yes. is being shared at yes. that, you know, intro to ABA level yes. that can yeah. really get people off on the right track yeah. and yeah. rewriting a lot of those introductory yeah. texts to ensure that they include all yeah. the amazing diverse authors yeah. um, and and all the amazing work that is being done, but yeah. it's just not being highlighted. Yeah, And I have no doubt that Dr. Nassia was doing brilliant amazing work pre-2020 i mean she must have been she she totally is and she, and she and, 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 you know um she's been in the field a long time and she's she's she she knows her stuff um uh but it's, it seems like sort of post-2020 the, the rest of the field was starting to go hey you know we, we need to start paying attention to you know some of these other voices and so i sort of expected over that time that you know some of these organizations would then you know kind of jump on Jump step up, <laughs> step up. Particularly because some of the, what maybe the leaders, not maybe not the sort of the the top leaders, but some of the you know some of the folks that were you know, you know high up in in the in 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 in, in those companies were folks that you know I I consider to be you know, probably ally type folks. Um, yeah. Um. Um. And yet still not a not a whole lot of change in terms of representation, and so. You know, it brings me to sort of you, you mentioned sort of diversity on the board and 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 sort of representation. 
um, you know, we're this this episode is is one of these rare ones that's actually going to go out not long after it's we have the interview, and so this will be timely for folks. But right now we're in the middle of of elections with the BACB, and I think there's uh, at least two spots on the board that were up for election, um, and uh, and and uh, and and there were and, and I saw for each for each position uh, there were two nominees. Um, but I was surprised to see that neither of the nominees were the ones that I nominated because <laughs> I yeah. did. And, 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 and folks will recall, I, I put out an interview uh, uh, in, in December uh, with, uh, with Kelly Bear and Jerron Trotman um, uh, who are, who are doing just incredible work right now around sort of um uh, you know, uh, increasing the diversity in the field. Kelly's founded MOBOC, the the Missouri uh, um, uh, Black Behavior Analyst uh, um, uh, group, uh, and then and then with that, she's also founded the uh, the, uh, the 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 TAP initiative, which is essentially looking at at uh, putting at, at getting uh, historically historically black colleges and universities to have more ABA programs, and they're they're Amazing. advocating for that. Um, she's just at, she's started the uh, the uh, Black Women in Behavior Analysis Day in February, and then John Trotman, who founded the 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 Black Men in Behavior Analysis, which is even a more of a minority group. You know, with you know, it's something four percent of behavior analysts are Black, and probably one percent of those are men. Um, you know, and and he's just doing some really amazing work around that. And they were both nominated for this election, and they would have been. You know, I think fantastic quite, for those roles. Fantastic, and 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 really put some representation. Like right now, as I understand it, there's one, you know, black member on the board, and I can't speak for for her, for for her, but I do know that this person is a student rep, and and I know from my experience on board, student reps don't have the biggest voice in the room, um, and yeah. so, and so I don't really think that would be considered representation, um, you know, in 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 its fullest form, and so this was a really great opportunity for two you know, really knowledgeable folks about sort of what's going on in the field and current events. And they, and their nominee, their nominations didn't even go through. And, oh my and, goodness. It, and so I don't even know. And I don't even understand why or how, because there, there doesn't seem to be any transparency in terms of how the board selects nominees. Apparently there was a write-in option at one point. Um, I, 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 I don't know that for a fact, but this is what I've been sort of told. Um, and 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 that's that's no longer exists. So you know, there's no there was no opportunity for these folks that were nominated. I filled out a nomination <laughs> form and submitted it to the BACB um, for for Kelly actually, um, and um, and they did not appear on this list. And so there are currently no black nominees, you know, on that list. There are there are folks from other other diverse backgrounds, which is great. But there's already representation from some of those groups on the board. Yeah. Um, uh, and as I understand it, even one of the people that is being is 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 up for election was on the board previously um, <laughs> in some capacity. And so they're, they're, you know, they're putting in folks that have already been on the board as nominees. Instead of so, adding some fresh input and voices. Yeah, and yeah exactly. And, and it's ridiculous. I, I recommend folks check out... Um, uh Brian Middleton's Oh Behave podcast. He does an interview with um with Duran and Kelly since the interview I've done with them. And I think they kind of dig more into some of their stuff. Brian is a is a is a great advocate for change and some of 
our biggest organization who's been you know speaking out a lot more than a lot of folks and so uh but it's 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 really and I think that, that also goes back to the uh, anti-racist work too would be understanding those systems, understanding the structure of the BACV, better mm-hmm. understanding what the barriers are for diverse groups to access positions of power and how mm-hmm. we can help mitigate that or decrease those barriers in a mm-hmm. way that the board represents the behavior anal- analytic community. Mm-hmm. Well, and to your other point earlier about sort of, you know, trying to just have a, a, a more diverse field in general um, and trying to sort of recruit, you know, folks to, to to join the field. We already know that, you know, there are like so many, so many of the folks that I've interviewed on the podcast uh, that come, you know, that sort of that come from the, you know, the, 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 the global majority, as it were. Almost all of them have identified as first generation university students. So the very yeah. first person ever in their entire history of their family to, you know, to get a university degree. Um, and, you know, and, and the reasons for that are, are, I think, I think there's, there's sort of two reasons for this one racism and systemic racism and systemic problems. The other reason, which I think is probably, you know, probably less so because I think it's sort of, it's because colonization has sort of hammered this sort of into folks, but colonization, you know, the, the, the sort of need to have a degree in the first place is a very colonized way of looking at things, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been talking to a lot of folks about sort of, you know, indigenous ways of being and, and the fact that these folks literally have, you know, you know, much like, you know, the, the, the Jewish history we've been talking about today, thousands and thousands of years of evidence that what they're doing works well. Um, <laughs> but none of that is accepted because it's not published in a journal by someone with a PhD. Uh, and yeah. the journal and the and the journals and the PhDs and all that are all sort of products of that kind of Eurocentric, um, um, you know, sort of angle. But fact is, if folks want to be in these kinds of fields in 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 North America, they need to have these degrees. They need to have this training. And there are so many barriers for for getting into that. And the BACB is is probably the one organization that could have the most influence on you know on helping these folks get in. And I don't Absolutely. think they're doing that work. Yeah. I mean, they they have the way to support the certification and accreditation of different institutions to lead to this. And so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Asking, you know, why aren't these measures being taken or what is needed? And if there's somebody willing to do the work, how can this, you know, be done? How can we ensure that there is a board member that is working towards this outcome that we all value so much? Mm-hmm. Now I know there's a I know a lot a lot of stuff there's been a lot of conversation around the ethics code and 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 some around that. I know there's a new ethics code that that it just come out or came out in the last couple of years or something. Yeah. Um that 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 I apparently added some things. Do, do, you, do you know what they added that that sort of is works towards some of this stuff? Um, I believe there was more language around DEI, um, mm. and there was more language about uh, understanding your biases. Um, mm. The gift receiving was framed more in terms of, uh, like, I think there was a number, a value right. placed, and I believe there was discussion about, you know, if you enter a home where it is culturally appropriate for them to offer you a glass of water, like, please accept the water instead of yeah. offending the family, yeah. Um, yeah. and and kind of about that, but 
to my knowledge, there wasn't a huge change. Yeah. yeah. And then there was sort of this this thing, and I've, I've brought this up a few times, that they're adding a cultural uh, CEU requirement. I heard about that. <laughs> but oddly, not requiring it until 2027. <laughs> um, and so, again, is it is it like it doesn't seem like there'd be a lot of, you know, sort of, you know, work to do there to sort of just say, yes, add, add another CEU category to the BACB portal and um, and start collecting those CEUs. I mean, there's lots and lots of folks that are putting stuff out there that could be classified. And I was going to say, there's so many CEUs. things that would already fall under that category, yeah. too, that it would just add that extra encouragement yeah. to seek those out. <laughs> yeah. So it, it feels to me like, you know, you, you, I think you, this paper was maybe written in 2020 or maybe first published in, it was 2021. Published in 2021. Yeah. And then, and then I think it made it into a paper version in 2022, but it was published in 2021. So that's three years ago. Um, a lot of, you know, we won't get into them all. There's lots of amazing recommendations in here. Does it seem for the most part that these haven't really been followed? I would say on, on the institution and structural level, it seems like mm. there are a lot of good intentions mm. um, or a lot of, you know, posts being made or statements being made. Mm. I haven't seen a huge change overall. Yeah. I will say, um, and this could be a caveat of, you know, just where I exist here in Ontario um, mm. and with organizations that I have personally worked with, that there is more of a drive on the practitioner level. I think there's more of a awakening mm. on the practitioner level to listen to autistic voices, to mm. um, provide culturally humble care. Um, and even just based on, you know, organizations that have reached out to me as an individual and asking mm. me to consult with them or to provide a training or to help their senior therapists uh, reframe some of their ABA work, that that mm. has been very positive. I don't think I could necessarily speak to outside of, you know, sure. my region here in, here in Ontario. I haven't seen or heard about it i'll say but yeah, it, yeah. that's not to say that it doesn't exist but i would say it hasn't existed in a way that uh mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know made waves enough for me to hear about it here <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do with some other agencies in ontario um yeah so after um it's a, in the thick of covid um is my kind of frame of reference uh, Antaba put on one of their, um, the Ontario Association for Behavior Analysis, put on a panel, um, and I was one of the panel members, and it was talking mm. about um, providing, you know, more culturally humble care and DEI within practice, um, and in that I was discussing my paper and discussing some mm. of this um, work that we've talked about in uh, this podcast so far, and a lot of it um, sparked interest, I would say, in some organizations here in Durham and in Toronto, and so through that, I was is asked to consult with a couple organizations, um, and that kind of helped uh, build uh, the idea of providing more of a consistent workshop or training um, to really help the, at the practitioner level. Mm -hmm. um, and I also work with the uh, Durham College here, who has a number of ABA programs, mm -hmm. um, and I'm on their program advisory committee. And so, oh, cool. you know, helping them embed, like I was saying, more examples and making sure that their students are aware. Um, and depending on, I'd say, like, I've we also have some practicum students from the college and, you know, yeah. some students have definitely taken the DEI courses that they've offered. Um, but I've also had some first year students who I've asked them to make a schedule, for example, for 
um, a black girl and all the images were little white children. And so I had to mm. point out being like, this is her morning routine. Let's make sure her morning routine reflects her. Even if they're cartoon images, they mm-hmm. should still reflect her and her family and what her family looks like. And so mm-hmm. um, just pointing that out. Um, and I will say that, you know, this was a first year student who may not have had that class yet. Um, still yeah. hope that it would be embedded more within those intro to ABA first day classes. Um, but really, uh, you know, kind of sparked a lot of that motivation to help the college level, to help the um, individual practitioner and to provide these workshops to really kind of go through from start to finish of what do your intake forms look like? How can your intake mm. forms be framed in a way that you're able to gather information so that from the get-go, you're learning more about their learning history or you're learning more about um, their religious practices or you're learning more about this individual's language. You might need a translator. You might, you know, need to better structure their communication devices so they can communicate with grandma who doesn't speak English and really Mm. kind of taking them through the steps that I would do as a clinician from intake to when programs start. Hmm. Cool. So talk about that work. So is that, is that what's, well, let's start rephrase. So impact village. I love the name. Uh, uh, So it is, why did you call it that? Uh, we were tossing around another, like a number of different names. Um, we really wanted the sense of community and the sense of, you know, it takes a village um, and that we are just one part of our clients, you know, community and world. Um, you know, they have their family, their parents, their grandparents, and we're just one part of that community that's going to help them thrive and help them, mm. you know, be the best that they can be. Um, and so we really wanted that sense of village and then the impact of just creating that positive impact. Um, and really kind of, kind of just came together. We heard it and we were like, that's it. That's the name that really represents us. And so do, do, do you have like, like, do you have like employees and what are, or is it, is it you? Yeah. So we have, um, we have a clinical practice. Um, we do, uh, in home and we rent a space here in Durham. Um, and we provide direct one-to-one therapy. We also do a lot of group programs. Um, recently we've been partnering with a psychotherapist and providing, um, like sibling support groups. And so she's been amazing at um, working with our team and the siblings of our clients um, and cool. understanding and appreciating the unique position that they're in yeah. um, and how they also need support and how they're kind of filling this role of sibling and sometimes also co-parent, um, depending on yeah. their roles and responsibilities within their families. Um, and then she's also going to be running, um, she's peers, peers certified. And so, you know, working with her to provide additional um programs more in line with like the psychotherapeutic model and kind of combining that with ABA and how we can support our families more um, wholly. <laughs> so mm. it is a lot of a, a social social skills groups, group learning, individual programs. Um, and then through that as well, we also uh, do student placements. So we have students from Durham College and other colleges in Ontario uh, that come and complete their practicum hours with us uh, and learn alongside us and get to see ABA in practice. Um, and then on um, a newer, smaller scale is, are those those cultural humility trainings and um, mm. kind of helping other organizations align their practice in a way that is more um, holistic, culturally humble, uh, and mm. socially valid, I would say. And, and it's been a really positive experience um, collaborating and working with other organizations and kind mm. of taking them through and using our model at impact village from start to finish of how we support our clients and you know mm-hmm. how is how i was referencing it like our intake forms um we make sure that we 
The third secret word is Hebrew. Leave a lot more open spaces and not check boxes because we want people to tell us about themselves and not just assume that they need to check this or that. Mm. Um, and we ask about languages and we ask about religion. We ask if there's any religious practices um, or customs that we need to be aware about before we enter their home in terms of how we should dress to ensure that we're mm. respectful. Um, we ask, you know, a lot about that learning history so we can learn as much as we can when we're preparing mm. for those, you know, really crucial initial um sessions where you get to know the yeah. family and you get to yeah. learn more about them and then yeah, kind of cool. taking them through okay now that we know this about this individual that you're about to support how can you structure your assessments in a ways that aligns with the information that you received on the intake you know it says that they live primarily with grandma who speaks this language how can we ensure that their communication device is able to communicate both at school which is going to be an english-speaking school um, here in ontario or french <laughs> um or um, and at home with grandma, you know, yes, they're all picture mm. icons, but is grandma going to be able to understand that and kind of walking right. them through the process that we would do in practice, um, so that they are able to, um, provide similar care and provide care that may, um, align more with their values. If their values mm. are consistent with ours at impact village. Awesome. And you, you talked about early on about kind of, you know, some of just your experiences early on, just in having jobs and, and, you know, you know, like not wanting getting Easter off and, you know, being Jewish yeah. and not being all that helpful. Have you been able to sort of uh, provide supports for your staff in that way to sort of, that, that, that sort of deal with, I know some of that's kind of has to be connected sort of to like provincial laws and employment yeah, standards and we, things like that. We definitely do our best and any time requested off for religious or cultural or personal reasons is mm -hmm. of course granted. Um, we don't have control over statutory holidays. And so everyone here gets Christmas and Boxing Day off and everyone mm -hmm. here gets uh, Good Friday and Easter off. That's like an Ontario standard. Mm -hmm. And as a business within Ontario, we also need to you know, close during those holidays and properly compensate our staff during those holidays, mm -hmm. even if they don't um, necessarily follow our members of that religious community yeah, yeah, yeah. um we definitely do our best for our clients as well like we'll have a winter holiday party and for all of our clients that are attending we ask them to fill out a form like what holidays and traditions does your family celebrate how could mm. we incorporate that into ours you know would your child like to help their friends cool. learn about what your family does um and so we kind of make it more of just a universal schools out celebration mm. <laughs> that happens to take place in the winter um and kind of veering away from that. And I, I know that mm. has, for me, at least definitely come from, you know, having to be a reindeer in the Christmas concert <laughs> growing up and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and so I think we are doing the best and always trying to learn and grow to do more, um, but structurally too, the way that yeah. it's set up here in Ontario in terms of stat holidays and time yeah. off work, um, they do more correspond and correlate to, you know, Christian holidays. Mm. I just know in, I'm in British Columbia and I know our employment standards do actually allow for some flexibility. Um, and so um, uh, one thing we we're piloting this year is um, because there are federal statutory holidays and mm -hmm. then there are provincial holidays, yes. uh, you know, um, that the provincial ones apparently have a little more flexibility. So I think it's, okay. uh, I, so I believe it's, I believe it's Easter Monday and Boxing Day, maybe. 
Um, uh, okay. I think there, I think you're right. The Easter Monday is maybe optional. The Friday is not like there is a, yeah. there's a difference. And I know with yeah. us too, like the civic holiday, um, one thing like we don't, one of our staff, we don't get truth and reconciliation day off, um, which mm. I was pretty shocked about that. That wasn't a stat holiday. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and that, that changed this year for last year for us. It wasn't before. Okay. Maybe it's um, coming. Maybe Ontario. Yeah, because I, I know what we're trying to do is uh, I know we're we're I think we this year we're piloting offering those those two particular days to be used for whatever folks want. Um, okay. Uh, as long as there's some consistency, so it doesn't change every year. Um, so it's, yeah. You know, I mean, I know there's I know there are holidays like Ramadan and others where that do shift in the calendar. Um, 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 and so. For those, they'd be allowed to sort of move them around, but they're trying to sort of accommodate for those. But there is something written in our standards, and it'd be interesting to see if some of the other standards actually have some of this 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 uh, language that, with the right kind of documentation, we can change all of them. I would love to look more into that. I was yeah. not under the, yeah. uh, I was not aware that that might even be an option um, yeah. here yeah. in Ontario. Yeah. But I'll have to look into the is, provincial but it, differences. But yeah, it is over here. That's amazing. So, yeah, it is amazing. If you say about Truth and Reconciliation Day, we actually, it's funny, we actually, uh, when the first year it came out, or the first or second, second year it came out, it uh, it was a it was a holiday for the province, um, but not federally. Um, uh, but it wasn't mandated. Um, oh. And so we decided initially not to give our staff that day off. And instead spend the whole day doing truth and reconciliation activities um uh, because i because i've talked to some indigenous folks and and i agree with the perspective that you know a day off you know to go hang out with your family isn't really yeah. you know sort of respecting truth and reconciliation and i think yeah. a lot of these religious holidays you know um unless you're you know part of a part practicing that religion you know yeah. you're not actually you know um you know um, like finding meaning in that day exactly yeah 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 so yeah so it's interesting kind of looking at that really cool really cool so what's so the, the focus of this presentation is going to be primarily on 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 sort of practitioner skills is that is that stuff basically the stuff you're going to be talking about it, it comes out of the work that you've been doing with some of these other agencies yes yeah absolutely and just kind of how to um, start off on the right track and not backtrack. I know that with what a lot of organizations have shared is like, oh, well, once we learned that we did this instead. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, but how can we start off where you already know that information before yeah. you're going into the assessments? Or how can we start off, you know, not backtracking and, you know, creating a arbitrary set one, set two, set three of tacting mm -hmm. for things that they don't necessarily need to label within their home or within mm -hmm. their community mm -hmm. um, and kind of like starting off on the right foot from the very beginning um, and kind of how to, how to practice that. And also going into, going into it, acknowledging that we all have biases. Um, mm -hmm. We all, you know, have learning histories that include being exposed to different cultures, religions, and backgrounds in very specific ways. Um, mm -hmm. And acknowledging that, that, you know, you might have biases going into a family's home, especially if you have a um, traumatic or particularly hard learning history with a religious group, like what you shared, you know, you might have that initial gut. Nope, I don't want to do this. I don't want to enter this home if it kind of mm. brings up a lot of that other stuff. And so 
a lot of the cultural humility is, is understanding and acknowledging your own biases and then um, learning how to best support your client knowing as much, you know, about them and, and working towards those biases and, and, and working um, to overcome that in a way that is productive. Cool. And is this event, can anyone come? Or is this just for Ontario um, folk, I believe or? it is open to everyone. I think Ontario is partnering with Kansas, I want to say. Oh. Um, and it's, <laughs> I think the Kansas and Ontario chapters of the Behaviors for Social Responsibility, um, that they are working together to put on this workshop. Um, it's online. Uh, it's during lunchtime. So it's at 12 o'clock Eastern time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, everyone can join. Cool. And then also Louis Bush is also doing something. Is he presenting on something different or? Um, yes, I can send you his abstract because I don't yeah. want to misquote what yeah. his, his presentation is, but yes, yeah. he and I are both presenting during the lunchtime workshop. I, I believe it does have uh, an indigenous focus though his yes his, it's going to be about cultural humility um with that indigenous lens i'm just not yeah. sure on like yeah, the specific the verbiage exact, that he's using verbiage, in his abstract yeah, yeah 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 cool 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 right on well really cool uh and so any uh, what what sort of some of the plans goals for for 2024 for you and for impact uh we are hoping to continue to expand um we kind of came into existence in the thick of COVID. The organization I was working for um, was closing their ABA department. And mm. um, while I've always wanted to open up my own private practice, it definitely pushed me to do it a little bit sooner than I had initially planned. Um, so mm. we kind of started without um, that bigger kind of bigger goal. We kind of had started based on like almost like needs-based started. Like we had clients that were in need and we um, supported them. And so a lot of our programs have been created kind of following their needs. So our social skills um, groups have been really geared, um, a lot more collaboration, I'm hoping with other practitioners and other fields, we really want to expand our support to include those in um, high school. Um, here, the Ontario Autism Program does go up to uh, age um, 18, like once you turn mm -hmm. 18. And so yep. supporting um, those, the youth in high school, um, we would love to expand um, some of our consultative work um, and continue to work with other organizations and other institutions as well. Super cool. Super cool. <laughs> well, right on, Sonia. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This was really awesome. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>